this morning, we get the great privilege to begin our service with baptism. I mean, this is... This is absolutely awesome. It's one of my favorite things to see and to witness and to celebrate. Because what we're doing here is not just a ritual. It is a very beautiful depiction of someone who has stepped over from death unto life because of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Matthew comes this morning. Uh, to follow his decision to submit and to surrender into Jesus Christ as a public declaration of that testimony, he is going to be baptized in accordance to the Word of God. Matthew's journey to this point has been a really interesting one, and many of us have been a part of that process along the way. I asked him for permission to share some of these details, and he gave me permission Matthew, his first visit to our church was the Sunday before Christmas. Matthew had been homeless, sleeping out on, on Slab Road, woke up that morning with ice and everything, in desperate need. He found his way to the church, to which I believe it was Catherine saw him first, asked him if he was hungry. He said he was and went to go get him some food. And others in the church began to see him and to welcome him and, and, and send him to a Bible study group. And that Bible study group put their arms of love and grace around this guy. He went from being homeless on that night before on Sunday to being able to go to a house and take a shower and get his clothes clean to, to rest and stayed in a home for, you know, leading up into Christmas. It was the, uh, I think it was Monday that uh, he showed up and someone extended him a job and Matthew's been working full-time ever since. And instead of couch surfing or, or being a guest in someone's home, he's now staying in a place of his own. He's working. He has transportation. In the midst of all of this, Matthew has submitted his life unto the King of Kings. Check this out. Amen. Now watch this. Everybody who has been a part of this process in Matthew's life in some one way or another since that first day that he arrived here, do me a favor, just stand where you are. Stand. You've been a part of his story. Just stand. Look how wonderful this is. This is a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to look like and all, and so I hope you can see the clear connection of this journey in our study this morning in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15 today. We're moving in Romans now. We've got some momentum. But before we do all of that, let's celebrate, let's witness. They've got cameras ready. There's, yep, all cameras, pictures, they're good. Fred, I turn it over to you, my friend. Thank you, Pastor. That's you, my brother. It is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Bibles opened. Romans chapter 1. Like I said earlier, we're going to be covering verses 8 through 15 this morning. In this next section of Scripture, we're going to discover why Paul wrote to the Romans. 
Keep in mind uh, that Paul had, to this point, never visited the church in Rome. Nor did he have any true personal connection with any of the believers in Rome. And yet, Paul wanted those in Rome to know of his great interest in them, as well as his great love for them. So simply stated, Paul wrote to them, because he deeply cared about their spiritual condition. So we pick up in verse number 8 this morning. Verse 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, when, when Paul uses the word first here, He's not about to give them a list of things to do or things to consider. You'll notice that although he uses the word first, he doesn't follow that up with secondly or thirdly or anything like that. When he uses that word, what he's trying to convey is that he's trying to say, hey, before I go any further, uh, before I get into the meat of this letter, there's something that I want you to know. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul gave thanks to all the believers in the church at Rome. His gratitude was impartial. His gratitude was all-encompassing. The specific reason for Paul's thankfulness for the Romans' believer was their deep abiding faith. One that he said was, was known throughout the whole world. So the church at Rome was a great church. Although he didn't know the church personally, he knew what he had heard about the church. And the church's testimony for Christ was strong and substantial, and it was proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now that phrase, the whole world, you need to understand, it's a hyperbole. He's not saying every single person under the sun has heard about the Roman believers. But what he is saying is that their faithfulness has been noted, recognized, and celebrated throughout all of the Roman Empire. The believers were living pure lives in the midst of a wicked and unjust society. After all, the the Romans were known for many bad things. They were known for their immorality and their selfishness. They were known for their drunkenness, their partying, their gluttony. They were extravagant and greedy. Roman citizens were full of pride. Indulgence and idolatry was widely embraced. And yet, in the midst of all of this sin and corruption, the believers, the church, were standing firm. They were standing firm and they were living pure lives, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful reputation for a church. Do you ever pause to consider what is the current reputation of the church? What is the church known for? More specifically, what is the reputation of the church First Baptist Kingsland? What would others say about this place? Would they look at this church with the same type of declaration and Admiration as they looked at the church in Rome because this church is noted and respected and regarded as having deep, abiding faith. Some churches are are well known because of their pastor. 
Others are, are recognized because of their great architecture or maybe because of the stained glass that they have in their building. Uh, some churches are, are celebrated because of their size or their wealth. And I can't ever wrap my mind around some publication every year does a listing of the top 100 churches and it's all based upon size and attendance and that's how they get their, their recognition. There are some churches that are known because of the movies they make or the songs that they produce. That's their reputation. But the church in Rome was recognized because of their deep abiding faith. Which means that no matter how immoral or corrupt our society becomes, we are to stand firm on the Word of God and do all that we can to proclaim the gospel of truth. That's our mission. That's what we should do. Paul understood this, and he saw that being lived out in the believers in Rome, and it was something that needed to be highlighted and celebrated. Paul's primary service to God was in the preaching and the proclamation of the Word of God and the Gospel. But as he goes on to explain, the service of God, as he exercised that, also included a deep personal concern for everyone who responded to the gospel. And what's interesting about Paul is it didn't matter to him if he was the one to introduce the gospel to someone or if somebody else did. He wasn't driven in jealousy that way. Paul had a concern for all those who believe the truth of God's word. And so in verse number 9, he says, For God whom I serve in my spirit, and the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So Paul uses this phrase, for God is my witness. This, this is understood to be some type of oath in which he calls upon God to to bear witness to the truthfulness of his statement, of his desire, of how much he prayed for the church and how, how deeply he longed to be there at that place to speak into their hearts and to their lives. This isn't a unique thing for Paul to say. He would often call on God to be his witness throughout his letters. I'll give you some references and you can check those out later, but you can see this practice of Paul and other places like 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 23. Again, you'll find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. Other places in Scripture where he uses this model is like Galatians 1, verse 20, Philippians 1, 8, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5, and verse 10. And so what Paul is doing is, Paul is calling upon God to be his witness. He, he does that when he's trying to uh, affirm things that are uh, unseen by others or, or yet to be determined on their own, if that makes sense. He can't say uh, the, the people in Rome had no idea because they've never seen Paul in prayer. So how were they to know that his claim to always be in prayer for them was a true claim? That's why Paul says, if I were on trial, 
for my prayer life in respect to the Romans, then the first person I would call to the stand would be God himself who would give witness to the testimony of the truth that I have a deep abiding love for you that is often displayed in my prayers on your behalf. So here, Paul called upon God to give witness to the fact that he prayed for the church. Paul didn't just talk about prayer. Paul, he didn't just tell people that he would pray for them, you know, as a, a form of courtesy. Paul didn't pretend to pray, nor did he just give a, a few glancing, glancing, sorry, glancing moments of prayer for the church. No, Paul really prayed. He had a deep abiding love and concern for the people that he often found himself in prayer unto God. He took time to ask God to strengthen the believers, to help, to encourage them. He also asked God for the privilege to be able to, to be in their midst so that he might encourage and strengthen them in his own understanding of the Word of God. And the fact of the matter is that God would answer this second part of God's prayer, his desire to be there for the church, God would ultimately answer that, but he answered it in a way that Paul never would have expected for himself. In fact, the answer to that prayer didn't come until a few years later. You should understand that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans around 57 AD. 57 AD. He wrote it as he was preparing to, uh, to make a journey to Jerusalem. He was going to travel to Jerusalem so that he could take a special offering that was collected among Gentile churches for the poor believers in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. So, so Paul's original plan around 57 AD was to travel to Jerusalem to deliver the special offering, and then from there to go to uh, Rome and then travel on to Spain. But, but something happened. You know, God, God, God sovereignly intervened in the midst of all of that. And when he's in Jerusalem, then Paul gets in major trouble. He, he gets seized, he sees, and he's arrested. You can read about it in Acts chapter 21 and in Acts chapter 22. Uh, they, they, they take captive Paul and they're ultimately going to execute him in Acts chapter 22. But before they can carry out his execution, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen so that he could appeal his case directly to Rome. So once he exercised that right, then they had to stop their pursuit of killing him, and then they had to transfer him from there all the way to Rome. And that journey in and of itself was filled with obstacles. He was shipwrecked on that time. I mean, when Paul arrives in Rome, he expressed his desire to be there among the people, but when he gets there for the very first time, he gets there as a prisoner. When, when Paul wrote this letter, he had no idea that several years later he would arrive in Rome as a prisoner of the state. Although he rejoiced in and he, he gave thanks for the church's faithfulness, Paul knew that without God's continuing provision in life, that even strong faith will falter. And he asked the church to also, as much as he's in prayer for them, 
Paul asked the believers in Rome to turn around and to pray for him as well. Turn with me real quick to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I love how, how God moves and how God works. Paul has a desire to be there. And so God gets him there by having him arrested, almost killed, sent on a crazy journey, and arrives as a prisoner of the state. Paul seized every opportunity that he could to proclaim the gospel. So while he's there, when he finally arrives for the very first time, that's when Paul writes the letters to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians. He writes those letters under his initial imprisonment in Rome. He writes a personal letter to Philemon as well. Four letters that are often referred to as the prison epistles. That's how God's moving and working in his life. And so near the end of Romans, you're there in Romans chapter 15. Look what Paul says, and look how he pleads, verse number 30. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I want you to realize that he's not asking prayers for a selfish reason. No, he's asking prayers for the sake of ministry. Because he says that he might, look at verse number 31. It says that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. That's his heartfelt desire. You can see that desire from the beginning all the way through and to the end of his letter to the Romans. Back to Romans 1. Listen to his desire get expressed in verses 11 and 12. It says, For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He longed to impart some spiritual gift to the believers. So, so the, he, he longed to be a part of helping to more deeply establish their deep abiding faith. When Paul uses the, the term spiritual gift here, we need to understand what he's really saying. He, he's not talking about the gift of salvation. Paul writes about that gift in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. So he's not talking about the gift of salvation. Uh, Paul's not also, nor is he talking about uh, spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit empowers and enables in the life of a believer to be used for the glory of God. He talks about spiritual gifts in that sense in Romans chapter 12. So he's not talking about the gift of salvation. He's not talking about the special abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us to carry out His mission upon this planet. No, here the term spiritual gift means the gift of grace. It means the truth of the grace of God. Simply put, Paul longed to share the truth of the Gospel with the believers at Rome. That's his desire to proclaim and to make known the truth of the Word of God. And when I read this, and I think I can't help but to reflect on my life and on all of our lives, and I wonder how many of us are so 
full of the gospel of truth that we ourselves have a deep abiding desire to proclaim and to make that truth known among our community. Oh, that we would. Oh, that we would have that hunger and that desire to not just to know the truths for ourselves, but to be a part of making that truth known unto others. Look at verse 12 again. It says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. You see what's happening here? Paul wished to be encouraged together with the other believers. And that word encouraged means to be both strengthened and consoled together. It's all in one. It's a strengthening and it's a consoling process that happens. And so Paul, what he's saying is that he expected not just to teach and to encourage the believers in Rome, but he also expected to be taught and encouraged by those believers in Rome. There was this mutual expectation that he had. He believed that there would be a a mutual sharing that would happen among everyone. And think about that, and I think about how unfortunate it is for today. What happens so often is our more gifted or more mature believers are seldom willing to hear and to listen to younger, less gifted individuals because they have this false idea that because you're younger in the faith or younger in age, that you don't really have the ability to speak any truth or encouragement in my life. What's also equally unfortunate is for our younger believers to sit in the midst of a gathering and they sit in silence because they think they have nothing to offer their leaders. Well, we're to encourage and to strengthen one another. It goes from bottom to top, from top to bottom. We all have a part to play. None of us should be so arrogant as to think, well, I don't need to go to that class or that study or listen to that person because they don't know as much as me. We were here this morning or we're watching or listening online some way. So obviously there's a desire in us to, to know the Word of God a little bit better. But that we would take that knowledge of His Word and to rightly apply it in our hearts and in our lives as well. Paul understood the value of mutual encouragement. I would pray that I hope that our desire would also to place a high value on mutually encouraging and teaching one another. In verse number 13, he says it like this. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and I have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Let's look at that verse 13 first. He says, I have planned to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit among you. In respect to our spiritual lives, the the Bible uses the term 
fruit in three different ways. Let me give those to you this morning. Sometimes it's used as a a metaphor for the attitudes that characterize a a believer's life. So fruit could, could, could refer to attitude. Uh, we see this in Galatians where we see the, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not nine fruits and we get to pick and choose which fruit we want to have manifested in our lives. It's singular fruit of the Spirit. These nine things are what characterizes the life of a believer. In our Wednesday night gathering, in here, we're going through the attributes of God. In the attributes of God, we're talking about 15 unique characteristics about our God. And so God is not 15 separate things. No, this is one all-encompassing way of looking at who God is. It's the same thing for believers. It's not nine different things that make up our lives. It's one, the fruit of the Spirit, the attitude of the believer is reflected in these nine different ways. So sometimes fruit is used to, to talk about our attitudes. Sometimes it's used to refer to our actions, how we live and what we do. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 15 says that through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. That's the action. That's, that's, that's what uh, the person is doing. So sometimes fruit refers to attitude. Sometimes it refers to action. And then there are times that it refers to addition. Addition, uh, including others, welcoming them in to the family of God through their faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 16, verse number 5, Paul writes and he says to, to greet Pentatos, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. And so that word underlined first convert, it comes from this Greek word, aparhe. And aparhe means the first fruit. It's the first fruit. The, the, the first addition to the church from Asia. And so, among the Romans, the fruit that Paul longed for was the fruit of addition to the, to the family of God. So Paul's desire to go to, to, to Rome, yes, he had a desire and a plan to, to proclaim the Gospel so that new people would come unto faith in Jesus Christ. And he equally had the desire to proclaim the truth for the building up and the encouraging of the existing saints in Rome. And so Paul says in verse number 14, he says it this way, he says that he's under obligation to do this. That word obligation means to owe. It means uh, to be a debtor or to be bound by duty. So two ideas are being expressed by Paul. He was under obligation because Jesus had done so much to him and for him to the provision of his salvation. But not only that, because Jesus had called him to preach the gospel. And so he felt this 
burden, this obligation to carry out this assignment that God has placed before him. This indebtedness was felt deeply by Paul. He was compelled to preach the gospel. Therefore, he could do and he would do nothing else. Reminded of the great 19th century missionary to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor realized this as, as well. Towards the end of his ministry in China, someone had suggested to him that he had given his whole life to the Orient because of his great love for the Chinese. When, when Hudson Taylor heard this, he shook his head, and he answered very thoughtfully, and he said, no, not because I love the Chinese, but because I love God. That was his driving desire, his love for God to be faithful to do what God has called him to do. And that was Paul's desire as well. I want you to notice this one little detail. In this text, Paul says that he's under God, obligation. And he says not unto God, but his obligation was to the Gentiles themselves. He was indebted to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. And if he kept quiet, it would have been worse than Paul having the, the cure to the, to the worst disease known unto mankind and refusing to share that cure with other people. Nothing would keep him quiet or silent. Nothing would distract him from being obedient to what God has called them to do. And Paul says that this indebtedness that he felt was an, a, a debt that he owed to the whole world, to everyone. When he makes the contrast between the Greeks and the barbarians, he, he's declaring that, that he owed the gospel to all nationalities and all cultures, to all people of the earth, whether or not they were civilized or uncivilized. It didn't matter if they were rich or if they were poor. And Paul owed it to all of them. And when he makes the distinction between the wise and the foolish, he, he's, he's declaring that he has an obligation to proclaim, to proclaim the gospel uh, to both the educated and the uneducated, to, to the motivated, to the lazy, <laughs> to those that were seeking, and to those that were complacent. Paul had an obligation to proclaim the truth to everyone. Why? Because the gospel is the great equalizer in life. It's the great equalizer. Every human being is equally lost without it, and they're equally saved by, in, and through it. Paul understood. He didn't pick and choose. He did all that he could to take the Word of God unto all people. For us to consider, here's the thought. We keep the message of the Gospel to ourselves. I can't think of a more inexcusable offense unto the holiness of our God. We truly belong to Him. Recipients of His love his truth, and His grace. And we ought to be compelled to share His love, His truth, and His grace with all people.
people. Everyone. No matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter what they smell like. We're under obligation to take the word of God unto all people. In fact, we, we know the wonderful news because we've received it into our lives. And so we too shared the debt and the burden of proclaiming that unto the whole world. And we're to proclaim it no matter what. No matter how we feel, our feelings don't give us an excuse not to be faithful to what God has called us to do. In fact, our feelings are irrelevant when it comes to being obedient unto God. Every sincere pastor would, would, would say that there are times in ministry where the ministry itself is its own reward. Which means when the studying and the preparation and, and the teaching and the preaching and the shepherding, just doing that is its own reward. But a sincere pastor would also say that there are times in life when this calling doesn't feel very attractive. When the studying, the teaching, the preparation, the shepherding, the proclamation, when, when all of it, it can seem to be oh so heavy and burdensome. But here's the deal. No matter how we feel, we do what God has called us to do because He has called us to do it and He will strengthen and enable us to be faithful to that calling. Our feelings don't matter. Faithfulness to the Word of God and to the calling of God, that's what matters. Christ is our Lord. We are His slaves. And it is a very poor slave who serves only when they feel like it. Verse 15. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The word eager means uh, Paul has this urgent willingness. Paul was eagerly, urgently willing to take all that was in him. To take all of his effort, all of his energy, all of the truth and the knowledge of the gospel. And he was willing to take all of that and to pour it into the hearts and lives of other people. Which we're left to consider for ourselves. Is our Christian service done with that same spirit of eagerness? Are we even serving others at all? And if we are serving others, is it done so out of habit? Out of obligation? Out of reluctant duty? Or is it done from an urgent willingness to, to proclaim the truth so that others might come to know and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Oh, may we submit and surrender our lives and, and to the King of Kings. May each and every one of us seek to serve Him and to serve one another. And like Paul, may we all be eager, urgently eager and willing to take all that is in us, all of the truth and the knowledge of the Gospel, 
and pour it into the hearts and lives of all people. Think about who currently in your life is in desperate need of responding to the gospel. Who? Surely every single one of us can think of someone. Would you pray for the courage and the conviction that God would give you that desire to proclaim the gospel into their life? To speak the truth. To, to love them enough to take the cure and, and make them aware that without Jesus, there's nothing. There's no hope. There's no peace. So as recipients of the hope and peace of Christ, may we all be urgently willing to proclaim that to all people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Father, we pray that you would guide us in our lives, that we would be encouraged by your word, that we would be strengthened by your teaching, and that we would be obedient to the calling that you've placed on all of our lives. In this moment, Father, there are those in this place listening or watching online that don't have the peace that you offer because they've yet to submit and surrender their lives unto Christ. Father, I pray that your Spirit would grant them the faith that they need to receive salvation for all of your children in this place. Pray that your Spirit would make known unto us not only what we need to do, but also how we're to do it, Father. We've all been called to proclaim your truth. You've gifted us all uniquely to do that in a variety of different ways. Help us to understand how you have uniquely equipped each and every one of us so that we may make you known in this community, throughout our state, our nation, the world. We're a mess right now. It's as though the moral decay in our nation is accelerating at an ever so rapid pace. May the church stand up, speak out. May we lead with deep, abiding faith for your glory to be made known and for you to receive all the praise. In Christ's name I pray, amen.